Welcome to Human Rights Education Now, a podcast series from Human Rights Educators USA. I'm your host, Bill Fernikes, a member of the National Steering Committee of HRE USA, a collaborative network to learn, teach, organize, advocate, and innovate for human rights education in the United States. This podcast aims to raise awareness about human rights education and invites listeners to engage with the worldwide movement to make human rights education a core focus of educational programs from preschool through higher education and in both non-formal and informal community educational settings. This episode concludes our conversation with Monisha Bajaj, Professor of International and Multicultural Education at the University of San Francisco and Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Human Rights Education. Monisha discusses her work dealing with immigrant and refugee youth, the relationship of social justice pedagogy to human rights education, how human rights education can address the threats posed by anti-democratic forms of governance around the globe, role models who have influenced her work, and changes she would recommend to advance human rights education in the future. Now, you've also talked a lot about your work with immigrant and refugee youth and um, particularly communities of color and children of recent migrants, they're going to be the most dominant part of the K-12 population in the next 20 years in in the United States in terms of demographics. So how do you want to address or how are you trying to address strategies using HRE and peace education with those groups, given their growing importance? Yeah, well, definitely. I mean, already even in 2020, you know, mid 2020s, we're already at where one out of four school age children in the U.S. is either an immigrant themselves or a child of immigrants. And that's only growing in proportion. So the way that I, you know, when I moved to California, I was at Teachers College Columbia as a professor, came to the University of San Francisco, um, took leadership of the human rights education concentration and the master's program when I came here and was really looking for ways to connect my students to research. And one of the ways I thought to do that was to have something local. A lot of my research is international. It's harder to get students abroad and engaged in projects in that way. And so we reached out to a local school here in Oakland um, that is solely for newcomer immigrant and refugee students. It's a public non-charter high school, um, but it has a criteria for admission that you have to have arrived to the U.S. within the past four years. And they were really open to partnering. And the way that we figured out to partner is that they needed um, more academic-focused after school clubs. And we had a group of students that was interested in doing research and engaging. And so we started a human rights club at the high school. And every week we would do activities, curriculum, we do field trips, we watched films um, around human rights issues. And at some point after, you know, introducing the students to some of the the frameworks, they started deciding what they wanted to focus on. So we had a couple of students from Burma. They really wanted to learn more about democracy efforts in Burma. So we found a few films on that, speakers. Um, and so what we found in that club, it lasted for about two and a half years, the club. And then some of our funding ran out and um, some of the school's needs changed. changed. And so um, the club 
ended at that point. And, you know, from the articles and the book that recently came out about that work, what we found is that students were really hungry to understand both dynamics in their, you know, their home countries. Some of them had transited through other countries coming to the U.S., And then dynamics in the U.S., because oftentimes they're in neighborhoods that are very high poverty, groups are kind of pitted against one another, and they were trying to understand the dynamics of their lives. You know, young people are so intelligent. We often don't, you know, consider or acknowledge that, but they are so smart and they're taking in everything and they're making sense of it in their own ways. But oftentimes they're not kind of entrusted with frameworks that would help them make sense of it better. And so what we found is that introducing them to human rights frameworks really helped students just be like, oh, that's why the Burmese government, you know, confiscated my family's property and we had to leave. You know, I was only six, but like it started to make sense for them, you know, why certain things had happened. And then understanding that, you know, the U.S. also has a lot of human rights problems and why there are many unhoused people outside of their communities, why they might, um, you know, be, you know, targeted by somebody who wants to rob them for economic reasons or whatever. So it just became a really robust way to have these conversations um, throughout the course of that club and, and, you know, being at the school so integrally every week and doing research and interviewing the students, interviewing the teachers. Um, You know, some of the writing is about the human rights club in specific, and some of it is just more about kind of human rights and education broadly of immigrant newcomer students in the Bay Area. And then the book also brings in examples from other places in the country as well, because we wanted it to be a little more national in scope. So that's just been something definitely because of what you said, the the growing population in the United States, um, you know, my own background, my family are immigrants to the United States. My father and my grandparents were refugees of the partition of South Asia. Um, They lived in refugee camps for many years. So that's always been an interest of mine personally and trying to understand what does it mean to be part of education in a new place um, and trying to, to make sense of the world around you, both for educational and social mobility issues, but also to like give you a sense of who you are, who you are in this place and what sorts of citizenship and and um, belonging is being fostered in that way. So the concept of identity, one's developing identity as a citizen or as a member of of a civic entity, for lack lack of a better term, you see that as something where the human rights framework can help people emerge better in that? Absolutely. And this is something I've seen across the different projects that I've worked on, whether it's in Zambia or the Dominican Republic or India or the U.S., that I feel like the human rights framework gives you an innate sense of belonging. There is something that exists, a document that is telling me that I belong everywhere and that, you know, I am endowed with these innate rights just by being a human being. And something about that I think is really powerful for especially people from marginalized communities that may have never gotten that message from their own nation state or their community before. I, uh, you know, I, I really think that there's something powerful there and really working with that in ways that engage and that sort of active pedagogy, dialogue, generative can really undo some of the harm that society um, bakes into people when they give them the sense that you are unequal or second class citizens because it, it because of your caste or your race or your nationality or your religion um, or because you came here as an immigrant or a refugee. Um, just undoing some of that can be really powerful. And I think it's useful for students who may be in positions of privilege too to realize that you know they didn't earn anything to get that privilege and other people are just as equal as well. Right, and I think it's important that. 
we keep in mind that human rights education is just as important for the people who are in those positions of, uh, you might say, power and privilege, yeah. because it broadens their perspective potentially. Absolutely. And that's not been my focus of my research, but I definitely agree. I think it's it's powerful and it can create a sense of um, belonging, a sense of solidarity, a sense of commitment beyond some of the the ways that society, which is kind of ranked in this economic way, can um, can create those divisions and and those, you know, those senses of entitlement and, you know, disregard for others. So uh, a, a term that's been used very widely is social justice. Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of conversation in uh, Human Rights Educators USA about the connection between human rights education yeah. and social justice. How do you conceptualize the those connections. Yeah. I mean, I like the term social justice. I think it really does a lot to kind of, I think the human rights framework can be limited sometimes. You can have all the rights, you know, ticked off that everyone has and not have necessarily, uh, you know, a kind of sense of justice in society as well, right? Like, I think you could do it in a way where you have all those rights and they're they're guaranteed not just at the bare minimum where you would have social justice, but you could see a government kind of taking off. Okay. Everybody has the basic, 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 whatever, but then you have rampant inequalities or, you know, uh, decisions in the U S like citizens United or corporations are, you know, having say over different policies, et cetera. So I think what social justice does is it gives you a sense of what's fair, what's just, how do we think about marginalization historically, what harms that produced, how do we rectify those harms? I don't think that that conversation around sort of compensatory measures, reparations is in the human rights framework as holistically to really think about how historically you have very unjust policies and what has that meant for communities that have been marginalized. So I think social justice can be a really useful lens to connect to and complement the human rights framework. What I think is hard about social justice is that it's very amorphous. Um, It's sort of become everything. Everything is social justice, right? Like Nike's pink sneakers are social justice because they're promoting women's empowerment, right? But there's a kind of um, co-optation. And it's not that it doesn't happen with human rights as well, but I feel like with the human rights framework, we have enough things kind of spelled out in articles and legal frameworks and how different people have, you know, modified those and applied those that it's a little bit more concrete. I feel this way a little bit about peace education too, where peace is everything. And it kind of, when something is everything, it also becomes nothing. Um, So I feel like what human rights is able to do is give some teeth to concepts of social justice and peace, if we can bring them together. But I think in its most radical form, social justice, that framework can also inform how we think about human rights, because we can look at the historical and and what is needed to address for past harm, which I don't think is as squarely in the human rights framework as it needs to be. Right. So many of the efforts to try to address uh, reparations are a good example of trying to integrate social justice with uh, human rights. Would that be fair to say? I think so. Now, in the United States today, uh, we could spend the next three or four days talking about all these serious human rights violations, but just a few of them, restrictions of voting rights, censorship of publications, academic freedom restrictions, directed uh, violence against minorities. If you had to select one of those and deploy HRE to improve the rights of children, mm. how would you do that? In the United States? Yeah, in the U.S., yeah. Hmm. 
That's a tough one because there's so many needs. Hmm. I mean, to me, I think something that I was reading about uh, when there was that, what was it called? The child's tax credit recently that was, we had it for a little bit, then it was taken away and they were showing how childhood poverty reduced so much during that credit and now is, is really back. So I think those types of things where you just, you know, like basic needs in terms of you know, I think what the U.S. has really not focused on is social, economic, social and economic rights. And what you have in that case is just such widening inequalities where entire children are growing up in situations of extreme poverty, families are suffering. Um, and then it's hard to, to even think about human rights when you are just trying to survive. So I don't know. I feel like that something that I noticed when I've been in other places, you know, not to say that they don't have severe human rights challenges. They do. I I visited Cuba and um, you know, they deliver food and milk to every household with a child under seven every day. And just in terms of thinking about the, the focus on just childhood nutrition and wellness and um, keeping families with young children out of poverty, many other societies, society, you know, countries in Europe are thinking about children and their future in a, in a much more robust way than I feel like here in the US we are. So it's not to say that that's the most important, but that's the one that comes to mind because I was reading that article recently about how that tax credit helped for that. I don't even remember how long it was. And then once that went away, the rates of childhood poverty just, um, you know, went up enormously. Did you then uh, develop a uh, a campaign, for example, that would be focused in uh, K-12 education? Would it be a popular education program to try to apply that human rights framework to address that specific issue? Yeah, I mean, I think that would be great. I think we need leaders who are more human rights informed. Um, I think what would be, I mean, we don't have a national education system and given what's going on in Florida and the book banning and other places, I don't think we should have a national education system. Uh, but something that I would love to see is human rights education required for all middle school level children. I think middle school is a great age to start. I mean, I think you can talk about human rights for younger grades too, you know, and talking about different examples, but I think middle school is when a lot of kids, you know, when we think about identity development and adolescent development, they're automatically starting to question why things are the way they are. And they're starting to really hone in on that sense of justice. What's right? What's wrong? Why is my family telling me this? I'm learning something different at school. That is just such a ripe time for introducing human rights education, really thinking about how to develop that consciousness in the educational sphere. And then we need legislators and policymakers who really care about human rights to be the ones thinking about the policies, you know, this kind of ping-ponging constantly. This, you have this tax credit, now you don't. You have this policy, now you don't. You have voting rights, now you don't. Like, I think what that does, and it, you know, I don't want to live in an authoritarian state, but there's a way that just like human rights is constantly on the table um, to be negotiated. And it shouldn't be like that. There's, you know, basic things that should be guaranteed. And even in this country that, you know, presents itself as the beacon of human rights at times, there's so many gaps that we see between rights and on the ground realities. Well, an interesting parallel is Social Security, because Social Security has really been the most significant driver of moving people above a certain age out of poverty. Yeah. And so if you think about it, it's the most powerful entitlement program ever created by the federal government. Mm. If you use the same same logic, why can't we do that for 
young yeah. children, right? Absolutely. But that's so, even on the chopping block these days. <laughs> well, uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Uh, but looking ahead, um, what do you see as some trends going forward in the global HRE movement? And of course, you mentioned before that they've been development of authoritarian regimes and so forth in Russia and other countries. And of course, a uh, very rapidly growing authoritarian streak in the Republican Party in this country. What do you see as some ways HRE can continue to move forward, given that situation? Yeah. That's a hard one. I mean, I think we're at this moment where it's hard to know how we move, move forward nationally, right? Like, I think in our own sort of, you know, a la Eleanor Roosevelt, in our own small places, we can try to move forward, you know, in the context we work in. I don't know about human rights educators in Florida, how they're moving forward, you know, when you can't even talk about uh, students who are gay and books are being banned just for having, you know, mention of racism or a Black character in the book, it's being banned. You know, it's hard to say. From my vantage point here in the Bay Area, I think, um, you know, I see a lot of students just being excited about bringing these ideas to their classrooms. And we're, we have, um, you know, these, we've done like a human rights Institute. I know you had some of your students who participated that a few years ago, where getting human rights educators together from around the country, giving them some tools, letting them network and connect. I think we need more opportunities for people to connect and gain inspiration from one another. I know that, you know, for a while there was that human rights education conference that took place in one country or another, that's a little inaccessible for, for grad students to get, you know, but it would be, I think it would be amazing if we had a national human rights educators convening, because those convenings, you can share ideas, you can share practices, and you get inspiration for the work you're doing. Oftentimes, one teacher in one place feels totally isolated, um, but being able to connect and stay in contact with a cohort of people who are all doing that work in different places can really create some sort of inspiration and connection. And, um, you know, also new ideas emerged from that kind of communion and, com you know, camaraderie that those places um, inspire. I know a few students from that Human Rights Teachers Institute we did a few years ago at the University of San Francisco, the pandemic happened. So it kind of got derailed. It was supposed to be a multi-year program. Um, the pandemic interrupted, then we lost our funding for it. But I know one of those students is coming to present at a conference we're organizing um, in California. Another student um, came to our master's program after participating in that and now is the events coordinator for the Education for Liberation Network. So just seeing how these folks have taken these ideas and are, are running with them in different spaces has been really great. And so I would see just that need to connect more. Um, I know resources are tight and it's hard, um, but thinking about how we just gain more momentum because the challenges are so many and it's easy to get discouraged, but how we kind of keep the momentum going and learn from one another constantly, I think would be really helpful. Well, you'll be happy to know John Terry, who came to your institute, uh, is the um, New Jersey regional rep for HRE USA. And he's a supervisor now in a local district. And he's organizing oh, a conference on human rights and climate change that we're going to hold one day before the uh, 75th anniversary of the UDA chart. Oh, that's great. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. So that's a good example of what you just talked yeah. about. Yeah. So as we come to the last few questions, uh, these are common that I ask in every interview. 
So the first one is, who would be the most influential role model for your work in human rights education, still living today or who has passed on? Yeah, well, I think I will give a shout out to Professor Claude, who's now passed away, just for being somebody who really inspired me to kind of change course and change directions. I thought, you know, after my master's, I was done with my education. And, you know, he inspired in me a desire to go all in on this field of human rights education. And um, I'll also say Loretta Ross. She's somebody who I just admired her work. Um, She ran the Center for Human Rights Education back, I think, in the 90s and early 2000s. And she's a, you know, Black feminist, human rights activist, um, professor, MacArthur genius, has done, you know, amazing things. And I always kind of admired her from afar. And a few years ago, I got the chance to interview her and co-write an article with her that's in our International Journal of Human Rights Education. And we hosted her at USF for a talk. And she's just a fantastic example, I think, of integrating human rights into work in the U.S. in meaningful ways that have had deep impact. Um, And then I think from, you know, somebody who's kind of rooted in academia, who's also passed on now, who I really take inspiration from is the scholar and theorist Bell Hooks. Um, you know, just her ideas about the classroom as a site of possibility, whether that's a K-12 classroom or a university classroom. Um, I love my work with students. I love being able to think together, dialogue together, co-create something together that gives everyone inspiration to to take on new things and and gain new ideas and reevaluate oneself in that way. And I think just being in that space continually um, of possibility is really inspiring for me. So I would say, those three people um, are are people who inspire me and I, I think of often. Great. So what quote most effectively sums up your view of the importance of human rights? Hmm. I wrote something down here in my, my notes. Um, well, I think, you know, my students for my human rights education class, we listened to a podcast about Frederick Douglass. Um, and how he was using the term human rights in the 18, in the mid 1800s. And we often don't think about Frederick Douglass as a human rights activist. And one of the quotes I've always liked of his um, is power concedes nothing without demand. And I know it goes on a little bit more. I don't know the exact words, but in terms of thinking about, you know, the challenges of our time, I think we have to continually figure out how we how we get organized, how we counter the forces that are trying to dominate and marginalize, and how we do that effectively um, with one another. Well, Frederick Douglass is a great uh, shining star, let's put it that way, in American history. And unfortunately, it seems some people now want to try to change the understanding of Frederick Douglass, yeah. but I don't think they're going to succeed. And so our final question is, if you had the power to make one critical change to advance HRE in the United States, what would you recommend? I'll go back to what I said earlier, which is that I would require it for all middle school students to learn human rights education in a robust and interactive and and meaningful way. Um, I know for me, when I um, I switched schools, my family moved and I switched schools in seventh grade and I went for a couple of years to a very progressive um, you know, progressive education environment. It was, we called all our teachers by their first name and we had no set schedule every day. And something that the teachers did is I was on the student council and they asked us, um, California had just a couple years earlier started um, honoring Martin Luther King Day as a holiday. And so they said, you know, we can take the day off for school, you know, that our school can close, which it usually does. 
but you all can also plan something for any student that wants to come. And they gave us options. They connected us to civil rights organizations in the community. And we decided to participate in an annual march um, with communities, largely communities of color, with civil rights leaders. And I just remember that we were these, you know, 12, 13-year-old, 14-year-old kids marching arm in arm with, um, you know, activists, advocates, leaders from the community, and just how powerful that was. And that, you know, I think for me, that middle school period was really when I started to think about um, ideas different than what my family gave me and really think about myself as my own being. And so that's why I always think middle school is such a powerful time to introduce new ideas, um, and really counter some of the indoctrination that we are seeing, unfortunately, rise again through, um, you know, these book bans and, you know, teachers getting fired for having a book in their school library, you know, the banning of school libraries in different places. I think we're moving into this phase that's really scary. And the only hopeful thing that I do see is just that the Internet exists and you have all these libraries like the New York City Public Library is allowing teens from any part of the country to have an unlimited checkout access to these and books in their states. And that maybe, you know, these young people who I know are smart and, and inquisitive, as all young people are, might start going against what they're what is forbidden in a way that will hopefully expose them to some ideas, even though it's getting harder and harder that um, you know, that they're being prohibited from reading things that are beautiful pieces of art and literature. Um, so I would say requiring human rights education, I think middle school is the right place to do it. And really thinking about how we expose these ideas to more and more, to more and more children here and elsewhere. Just to bridge off that quickly, do you believe that it should also be a requirement for licensure? For teachers? Yes. Yeah, I do. I absolutely do. The thing that's hard is that, um, you know, we have, like, there is a social justice class and a diversity class that is required, we haven't been able to get human rights education into that mix, at least here in California. But absolutely, I think teachers should be exposed to human rights, what it is, and have some fluency in that um, when they work with young people. Well, Manisha, it's just been a great pleasure speaking with you today. And I thank you, you very much for spending time with us. Thanks for listening to Human Rights Education Now. You can find additional information about this podcast series at www.hreusa.org. Each episode is available on the HREUSA podcast page, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Player FM, and Deezer. They will soon be available on YouTube and SoundCloud. You can also download each episode as an MP3 file. If you have questions or comments about this podcast, send them to Christy at HREUSA.org. That's K-R-I-S-T-I at HREUSA.org. Our podcast team includes host and producer Bill Fernickes, executive producer Christy Redalius palmer editor Elizabeth Schwab, sound designer and project manager Sabrina Sanchez, communications and public outreach coordinator Jessica DeBruggen, and production coordinator Jasmine Chizu Gota. The Human Rights Education Now logo was designed by Kim Berering. Human Rights Education Now is a production of Human Rights Educators USA, a project of the Center for Transformative Action in Ithaca, New York.